This lecture focuses on the common condition known as pulmonary embolism. And I think a reasonable place to start is to talk about D-dimer testing. Now, a D-dimer becomes elevated when there's an acute thrombus. Why? Because the D-dimers are a byproduct of the blood clot. Specifically, there is fibrin within the clot and the breakdown products of these fibrinous blood clots is the D-dimers. So if you don't have elevated D-dimers in the plasma, you can pretty much exclude the possibility that there is a major blood clot like a big PE going on. On the other hand, having an elevated D-dimer does not at all mean that you have a DVT or a PE. Why? because the elevated D-dimer happens in any type of blood clot. So if you have a patient that fell down the stairs and fractured their hip and now they're short of breath, do you want to get a D-dimer? No, because it's going to be elevated. Likewise, patient just gets out of surgery. Is the D-dimer going to be elevated? Of course it is. And there's a bunch of other disorders and conditions that the D-dimer is going to be elevated in. So other thromboembolic diseases like a big stroke is going to have an elevated D-dimer. But so will conditions like disseminated intravascular coagulation or severe sepsis. But D-dimer can be even elevated in a normal pregnancy. And of course, it can be elevated also in preeclampsia and eclampsia. Therefore, it is very important to know the population you are ordering a test in and don't order if it doesn't make sense to order it in that population because a D-dimer is not specific. It only helps you rule out a pulmonary embolism or a DVT and there are even exceptions to that rule. You see, D-dimer tests should be used in combination with a pretest clinical probability assessment. And that is where it can be very helpful because if you have a low-risk patient, one that you're like, eh, I think it's really unlikely the cause of this chest pain or shortness of breath is a pulmonary embolism, that low to intermediate population is where you want to get the D-dimer. And if it is negative, fantastic, you are done. However, if you're like, I'm pretty sure this is a pulmonary embolism, in that high likely pretest clinical probability scenario, you actually should go on to the imaging studies. You can go ahead and skip the D-dimer because all it is going to do is waste your time, possibly delay treatment, and it will add a little bit of cost, though they are not very expensive. They're about $15 to $20 as far as Medicare reimbursement. Although if the patient doesn't have insurance, of course, it's going to be much more expensive because patients are overcharged in that scenario. So the D-dimer now comes back positive. You haven't ruled anything in. It is not a test to rule in pulmonary embolism. But if it comes back negative in this low to intermediate population, it is a really important test because now you can skip harmful, not only financially harmful, but harmful to the kidneys when you use contrast, harmful to the DNA when you use cancer-causing radiation tests like CT scanning, and, dear I say, overdiagnosis of pulmonary embolism by CT angiography. Now, this is important because 
people always think that if the CT showed a PE, the PE was definitely there. I personally am probably up to about six patients over my career where I picked up the patient from a colleague and they started anticoagulation for pulmonary embolism. But when we really looked at the matter a little bit closer, they did not have a pulmonary embolism and we were able to spare the patient anticoagulation. This particularly happens in subsegmental PEs. Obviously not as big of a deal in massive PEs or bilateral pulmonary embolisms where the clots are really easy to see. But what happens is there is some diagnostic difficulty with breathing motion artifact in a chest CTA. There was actually a rather recent study in the August 2015 American Journal of Rentgenology. Rentgenology is the branch of medicine that deals with diagnosis and therapy through x-rays. And the title of that study was The Overdiagnosis of Pulmonary Embolism by Pulmonary CT Angiography. And what they did is they went back retrospectively to reinterpret the CT angiography. So this time they used subspecialty chest radiologists to relook at CTs that said there was a pulmonary embolism present. And the number was rather scary. 25.9%, so about a quarter of all CTs that were re-looked at that were originally ruled in for pulmonary embolism. Now this particularly happened when there was a solitary PE located in a segmental or subsegmental pulmonary artery. Therefore, like much in medicine, false positives happen. And so you've got to look at the clinical picture. And so where I tend to pick up on these things are, yes, the CT is read as a segmental or subsegmental single pulmonary embolism in the left upper chest. And then I'm looking at what the patient came in with, and they had right upper quadrant and right lower chest pain. And it just clinically doesn't make sense, but people are like, yep, the pulmonary embolism's there on the CT. We gotta treat. But sorry, what you actually gotta do is be a doctor and not trust everything that's written on a piece of paper if it clinically does not make sense. And possibly that patient didn't even need a CT to begin with if they would have had a negative D-dimer. So if we follow what the ACP wants us to do, which is the American College of Physicians, and they put this out in the report, it was titled Evaluation of Patients with Suspected Acute Pulmonary Embolism. It's a November 2015 issue. And what they say is if there's a low likelihood patient for pulmonary embolism and you get a D-dimer and it's negative, the clinician should not perform any more testing. Likewise, they say with a medium likelihood patient of a pulmonary embolism and a D-dimer is negative, no additional testing is needed. Now again, for patients with a high likelihood of pulmonary embolism, Imaging tests should be ordered and a D-dimer test is not needed at all. Now we will get back to what criteria we should be using in our assessment for whether a patient is low, medium, or high risk for pulmonary embolism. But first we have to acknowledge a very important point, which is D-dimer levels increase with age. What else increases with age? 
Things like renal impairment, so if you're giving contrast, you're more likely to get contrast-induced nephropathy, which is all the more reason we want our D-dimer to be useful as you increase in age, because that's exactly the population we don't want to have to give useless tests that potentially could be harmful, like contrast to. Although, I must say, for the younger population, we really don't want to give radiation, because that increases their risk of cancer. But here's the thing, if you use a single cutoff for a D-dimer level, you are going to be way over-testing the elderly population with things like radiation and contrast, or spending time in the VQ scanner or all the tests that we'll eventually talk about. But therefore, a fixed D-dimer cutoff level is not a good idea, and we want to use an age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff. That ubiquitous cutoff that so many places use of 500 as a D-dimer level is not going to be very beneficial for the elderly population. So studies started showing this, but the most important, because it is the largest and most robust study to date, was published in 2014 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and that is called the Adjust PE Study, also known as Age-Adjusted D-Dimer Cutoff Levels to Rule Out Pulmonary Embolism. Now, why is this so important? Because if you take a 75-year-old patient, if you didn't use age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff, only 1 in 16 patients could have the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism ruled out by a D-dimer of 500. What happens if you use an age-adjusted cutoff level for D-dimer? Actually, one in three patients you can now rule out and not go on to further diagnostic imaging testing. That is huge, people. So think of how much faster those people get out of the emergency department. But more important, again, not getting the radiation, not getting the contrast, and not getting anticoagulant therapy, which you probably have noticed can have some problems in the elderly population, particularly if they're prone to falling. The older you get, the worse the D-dimer test is if you use a single fixed cutoff. So let me quote another article from JAMA. This was April 28, 2015, where they talk about the D-dimer for pulmonary embolism. And they say only 5% of patients older than 80 have a negative D-dimer as compared with more than 50% of patients aged 40 years or younger. So it's a younger person's test unless you apply that age cutoff. And the beautiful thing is, it's really not hard to remember how to apply that age cutoff level if your EHR doesn't automatically calculate it, which ours unfortunately doesn't, and many of you are sure are in the same boat. But anyway, once you get above the age of 50, you just add a zero on. So if you're 55 years old, the D-dimer cutoff is 550. If you're 82 years old, it's 820. Not the hardest thing to memorize. And what they were looking at was a failure rate. So they were following up these patients for three months afterwards to see if there were thromboembolic events that happened. And if you use this age-adjusted D-dimer in patients over 50, it was just as good as getting 
a D-dimer test lower than 500 or after a negative pulmonary angiography result. So these patients did not have a higher DVT or pulmonary embolism risk three months out. Now again, if you think this is a high-risk patient, so if they're presenting with common presenting signs, so the common presenting signs of a pulmonary embolism are tachypnea or fast breathing, if you have calf, thigh, or really any extremity swelling and urethema and edema, you start worrying about a DVT that could have broken off or still be there and partly broken off. Tachycardia, a fast heart rate, is concerning. There can be rails. All that is rails is not always CHF or pulmonary fibrosis. Chest pain, particularly pleuritic chest pain, is what really gets us concerned. This, of course, is secondary to inflammation of the pleural membranes. And then there can be other things like hemoptysis. And then there's the stuff that presents with a lot of other things, particularly fever, right? I mean, you could have pleuritic chest pain, shortness of breath, and fever, and it can be pneumonia, or it could be a pulmonary embolism. Sometimes jugular venous distension can be present with a pulmonary embolism, particularly if it's very large, but we usually think of elevated JVD with congestive heart failure. Hypoxia in itself, hypoxemia can present in a ton of different things. And then, of course, there is the non-specific laboratory values beyond the D-dimer that we talked about. So troponin can be elevated, particularly in a moderate to large pulmonary embolism. B-natric peptide can be elevated. So a lot of non-specific stuff. And even the dyspnea, the onset, is usually very helpful because it often is within seconds or minutes. But I think all of us have seen cases, not only in the hospital, but sometimes they present a clinic with an onset of dyspnea that has been gradual, maybe because it's just an unusual situation, or maybe they have been throwing multiple pulmonary embolisms over a matter of time. Anyway, the clinical probability, it does somewhat come with clinical experience. Now, there have been criteria, of course, and the Wells criteria remains very popular in the literature. There's the modified Wells criteria as well. So basically, what the Wells criteria is, is it looks at the clinical assessment. So it's looking for clinical symptoms of a DVT, such as leg swelling or pain in the extremity. And then it's looking for a heart rate greater than 100. If you've had risk factors like immobilization or surgery within the last month, a previous blood clot, whether it's a DVT or PE, hemoptysis, malignancy, and then this category, other diagnosis, less likely than pulmonary embolism. So you look at the Wells criteria, there's different numbers assigned to things. So if you have clinical signs of a DVT, you get three points. If you have malignancy, you get one point. And then you add them up. So if your score is greater than six, you're a high probability patient. If it's two to six, you're a moderate probability and less than two, a low probability. And then there's the modified Wells criteria where it's greater than four PE is likely or less than four PE is unlikely. There's other criteria used like the PERC rule. That's the PERC rule. Again, they're looking at things age less than 50, heart rate less than 100. 
oxygen saturation greater than 95, no hemoptysis, no estrogen use, no prior DVT or PE, no unilateral leg swelling, and no surgery or trauma requiring a hospitalization within the last four weeks. They all have their benefits and drawbacks. For instance, the PERC rule really hasn't been substantially evaluated in a lot of clinical conditions, like a high prevalence of PE population, where when it has been looked at, it seems like it doesn't have a great predictive value. And it does seem more value in clinical settings with a low prevalence of pulmonary embolism. Some other issues were found with the Wells criteria. If you think that your patient really does or does not have a PE, based on asking the right questions, it's not just Gestalt, it's actually doing a very good history and physical, that can be really important because there's certain settings where the performance of the Wells criteria has been shown to be reduced. Now, this includes a primary care setting, but also when they've looked at the Wells criteria, when there's a high percentage of elderly patients or patients with major comorbidities or prior DVT, it sometimes does not perform as well when you're looking for DVT or pulmonary embolism, and Wells criteria is used for both. But where these things can be very helpful is if you have a low to intermediate Wells criteria, or Wells score, I should say, and a D-dimer that is in the normal range. Then using that combination becomes more powerful. Again, clinical, empirical, judgment, and testing together, not just testing in isolation, is the message. Okay, obviously a lot more to talk about when we talk about pulmonary embolism, so I will be back for another round. See you then.